Well, good morning, Zion. How's everybody doing this morning? Awesome. Happy 4th of July. I'm uh, doing my best to celebrate 4th of July with my outfit. To quote the great Katy Perry, baby, I'm a firework. There we go. Uh, it is so wonderful to have you all. If you don't know me, my name is Jason. I am one of the pastors here at Zion, and on behalf of all who call Zion their home, welcome. We are so glad you are here with us this morning. Um, we've got a lot going on this morning. Uh, if you're not familiar, a really good friend of mine and staff member, Jennifer Colby, recently resigned um, under great terms. She actually is beginning a new ministry opportunity as part of the leadership of the Dispatch in Owatonna, uh, Emergency Dispatch. And as she and I were processing through kind of what does it look like in this transition, uh, we started praying for the right person and praise the Lord. Uh, we had several people within Zion who applied for the Connections Director position and uh, Scott Lester ended up getting hired. Can we give a big round of excitement for that? I'm going to invite Scott Lester and his family up along with Jennifer Colby. And as Jennifer and I were talking, we were thinking about one of the, one of the incredible ways to do ministry well is to kind of hand on the, pass on the baton, so to speak. And one of the things that I love about Jennifer's heart is her heart is for ministry at Zion and for what God is doing. And part of that faithfulness is trusting that God is going to do the things that he needs to do. And, and she served the Lord so faithfully over the last several years. Can we give a thank you to Jennifer and all the work she did? Uh, let's go. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite anybody who would like to come and lay hands on Scott and his family to come forward. We're going to pray. Actually, Jennifer's going to pray a blessing over them. So if you'd like to come up and pray and lay a hand on them, Jennifer's going to lead us in prayer. And then we're going to dig right into our message this morning. I'll give a second here. If you want to go ahead and talk, Jennifer, yeah. Am I on? Hey, Scott. Do you remember the very first time we met? You were sitting outside the office, and I looked at you and said, do you have a teaching gift? And you said, I think I might. And I said, do you want to serve on men's ministry? And you said, I think I do. So from very early on, I have affirmed the calling in ministry for you. And so this is such a, an honor for me to be able to see the fruition of God's work in your life in this way. That's right. So uh, real quick, I wanted to get you an actual baton to pass off. But that's not as fun. I know that Jason's going to give you so many deep theological books that I got you a children's <laughs> book. And I have written in, since I knew the Lord was calling me away, I've been praying for you. I, I didn't know it was you, but I've been praying for you. And I, days when you get discouraged, when you need a reminder, go to this book and see the things that I've been praying for you. And it's not just me. You have an army full of people who are battling in prayer on your behalf and your family's behalf. So if you guys would raise a hand, let's pray over Scott. Oh, Father God, you are so good. We, we just come before you today just so honored and, and happy and joyous that you have positioned Scott in this, in this place. God, I pray that he would follow you. I pray that he would submit to your leading. God, I pray that you would continue to work in his life, continue to produce fruit that is of you, Lord. God, I pray for an encouragement from him, for him that just that he would just have this confidence of knowing that you are doing what you have said all along that you would do in his life. God, continue to remind him of your faithfulness. Continue to remind him that you are in his corner, that he is so strong with you, Lord. God, I pray for a covering over his family. God, just for a protection, but also, God, just that they would know that this is a holy thing. And thank you, 
you, Lord, that you have set him apart for vocational ministry. God, I pray that this would unify their family. God, you are so good. We do this because you are worthy of our honor. Scott is serving you because you are worthy of being glorified. And so we're here to celebrate Scott today, God, and we're just here to say thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness and answering so many of my prayers these last few months. Lord, I pray that um, his joy would just be abundant. And Father, I pray, God, just that his soul would be refreshed in knowing that you are his God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, so it's funny, as about five months ago, Scott and I were talking, and I, I asked him if he'd ever consider being in ministry, and he said no. <laughs> and now here we are, the Lord has a great sense of humor, so I'm so glad you're here, brother, excited for what God's going to do. All right, who's ready for the Holy Spirit to move in your life this morning? All right, if you want that, would you please stand with me? I'm going to invite my good friend Tim to come forward, and he's going to read our texts for this morning, and then we're going to join in prayer together. Is that on? Nope. Now it's on. There we go. Good morning. My name is Tim Millage. Uh, our family's been part of Zion for about nine months now. And our Bible readings from today are Psalms 147, 11, Romans 5, 3 through 5, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Tim. And now, if you'll continue standing, we, uh, we do a prayer together, which is a way of anticipating and preparing ourselves for what God has for us for our lives. And so, if you would, if you want to join me, and if you're not there yet, that's okay, if you just want to hear it. But if you want the Lord to show up to speak in your life this morning, would you pray after me? And we'll do kind of a repeat after me. Repeat after me. Heavenly Father, we live in a broken world where hope can often feel in short supply. You are the God of hope. Hope for the hopeless. I confess, I have not always trusted in you. I have relied on things that provide false or temporary hope. Holy Spirit, meet with me this morning. I need your power and strength, your provision and promises. Help me to become desperate for you, for your power and presence. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you for those who joined. Uh, so we're in our summer series called You've Already Got It, where we're exploring God's promises and blessing. And what we're doing is we're spending the summer just looking at a handful of the promises and blessings that the Bible says the believer already has because of what Jesus has given and provided for us. Now I want you to think about that for a second. You already have God's promises. All of heavenly riches exist 
and are available to you. The question is, are you accessing them? Are you believing in them? Now, here's the thing. If you're a Christian, that means if you've placed your hope and trust in Jesus as Savior, you don't have to fight to receive God's promise and blessings in your life. You don't. Because you've already got them. They're already there at your disposal. And part of the problem is that too many Christians think that somehow we still have to fight to receive them. I know that I found that in my own life, but you don't have to do this. You also don't have to try and earn God's blessings and promises. There's no amount of buying them or somehow thinking you can bribe God with your good deeds or generosity. But this doesn't mean that there isn't a struggle. The difference is, is that our struggle isn't with God. Our struggle is believing in God's promises for our life. How many of you would agree with that? That is the difficulty. It's actually trusting. We, our struggle is resisting the lies of the devil who, let's be honest, he works overtime to try and get you to strive to not believe in the promises available. It's not uncommon for people, especially Christians, to not understand what the authors of the Bible mean by this promise that God gives. And it is the promise of hope. Everybody say hope. Now I can tell you as part of my own story, I've often put my hope in the wrong things. And I, I mean, it's just, it's something that I've had to deal with my entire life. I'm sure all of us have done that. I know for me, I often put my hope in my experiences. And, and here's what I mean by that. I, I put my hope in my ability to minimize heartache and pain in my life. Always thinking about the next thing, place, or experience and believing that the next place is going to be better than the current place. How many of you have ever heard the term FOMO, fear of missing out? Anybody here got FOMO? Like, I'm a big FOMO guy. I struggle with being present in the moment. Now, I'm going to share something, and I wasn't going to because I don't want to make anybody nervous, but I have a tendency in my life, about every two years, I want to shift. And when I was younger, what this meant is usually about every two years, I'd leave for a new job or I'd get itchy. I'd, I'd start wanting the next thing because I struggle being present in the current because the grass is always greener somewhere else. And the Lord has had to do quite a bit of work in me. True story. This is the longest I've ever been at a church. Six years as of June 1st. And we're not planning on going anywhere. That's why I was... Thank you. Here's why this is a work of the Lord. And my wife can attest to this. Still, about every two years, I have this lie inside of me that says, it's probably better somewhere else. See, that's my thing, is my hope is in the next thing. And what that robs me of is being present in the current thing. Now, some of you, you put your hope in your emotions, your feelings. Some of you put your hope in your pain or your job or your money. But what God wants us to do is that God wants us to realize that our ultimate hope has to be found in him and his promises for our lives. My hope has often not been in God it's, or his purposes or his plans or his faithfulness. It's been in my own power, in my own 
plans and abilities to create fun experiences. Uh, no one's going to be surprised by this. Uh, two and a half years ago, we started looking at our values as a church, and you might be shocked to know this. One of my values is fun. I love fun. But the problem for me becomes is that often I put hope in having fun. This led to me younger having what I call Peter Pan syndrome. I didn't want to grow up. I just always wanted to have fun. Now, don't get me wrong. Fun is a great thing. But fun doesn't pay the bills necessarily. Fun doesn't get you through the difficult times in life. Fun is a temporary solution. And the reason why I did it is that I wanted to avoid pain. I put my hope in escapism. And this, I believe, is actually part of the problem of our culture today, is that when we look at the word hope, most of us don't actually understand what the Bible means by hope. For most of us, hope is synonymous with wishful thinking or positive vibes. It's abstract. I hope it doesn't rain today. I hope things work out. I hope that things are, this person over here is going to be nice to me. I hope I don't get in trouble, whatever it might be. And, and I want to hear this. I, I want you to hear this, okay? Nothing drives me more batty than when Christians say things like, hey, if you're a praying person, please pray. But if you just want to send out positive vibes, positive vibes do nothing for you. Our hope is in Jesus, amen? Our hope is not in somebody going, ooh, positive vibes in the universe. No, we have a God who loves us, who is relational with us. And so what we need is to understand where does our hope come from. Our hope is not in wishful thinking. Our hope is not in good feelings or good intentions. Because hope is not these things. We must then look at what is hope. And what is God's promise for hope in your life and in my life? For you Bible nerds out there, that'd be me included in that. Um, we're going to look at two words, one in Greek and one in Hebrew. In Greek, the word for hope is elpis. Everybody say elpis. Not Elvis, okay? Elpis with the, with the P. The word elpis means a joyful and confident expectation. It means to anticipate. When the writers of the Bible talk about hope in Jesus, it's never, well, I sure hope I didn't make a mistake in following this Jesus guy. Could you imagine the Apostle Paul sitting in his jail cell, knowing that he's probably going to be executed, awaiting trial, and as he's sitting there, he says this, be joyful and wishful thinking and positive vibes, bro. No. Yes, Paul sounded like Keanu Reeves. That's a real thing. It, it's a thing. Or what about Peter? Imagine Peter as he's being nailed upside down on the cross is what church history tells us. After faithfully loving and following Jesus, Peter crying out, I really hope Jesus is who he says he was. No, that's not what hope is. Hope is not hoping you're right. That is the definition of wishful thinking. For Peter, for Paul, for all those who have faithfully followed Jesus throughout history, their hope was in Jesus. Listen to what the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 3-4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth 
into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is waiting for you and me in heaven. When the authors of the Bible, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when they use the word hope, it has weight to it. It's powerful. The word for hope in Hebrew is actually a little bit different than it is in Greek. In Greek, it's, it is itself kind of abstract. It's anticipation. What does that mean to anticipate something? It's joyfully expecting. But in Hebrew, the language, the word of hope is not abstract, it's tangible. In fact, the root of the word in Hebrew actually is the same word used for rope or a cord. It's something you hold on to that you cling to in a storm. The word in Hebrew is tichva. Everybody say tichva. Tikvah, for the Hebrew, it is derived from the ideas that hope is something to be grasped, something to cling to, to hold to. This morning, we're going to be talking about how God promises you hope. And therefore, you don't have to hope for hope. You already have it in Christ if you understand what that hope is means. See, as a Christian, we never have to say these words. I sure hope what Jesus did on the cross is enough. Never have to say that. I never have to ask, I really hope I'm going to heaven or I hope God can forgive me. This is not a biblical definition of hope for hope in the Bible is not rooted in uncertainty or fear or disappointment. Rather, it is written, picture a sailor who's in a storm and what is he anchored to? A harbor, a rope, something that will keep him grounded through the storms of life. For the believer, it is read like this. Jesus is my only hope for God's forgiveness. Jesus is my only hope to be right with God. Jesus is my only hope to spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. Jesus is the only hope for the world. Would everybody say these words with me? Jesus, you are my hope. Say that together, ready? Jesus, you are my hope. Our hope is he is what we cling to. Who he is, his promises, his character, his faithfulness. Faith in Jesus is the anchor in the storm. It is what binds us to what we find in Scripture of God's faithfulness. And this is exactly why it is so so important to not just believe, but also understand what God's promise of hope means for your life. Hope is real and tangible. Some of you right now feel hopeless. Some of you right now are struggling through storms in life, maybe it's cancer, maybe it's the loss of a loved one, maybe it's a job loss, maybe it's depression, anxiety, whatever it is, maybe you might be here saying, I just feel hopeless right now and I'm here to tell you that God is hope in the storm. Because whether you know it or not, hope is a really, really big deal. Over the past several sermons, I've taken moments where we talk about how God 
specifically designed our brains, our neurochemistry, and our bodies to react to things that we believe and do. For instance, we shared how that God created your brain to release these happy neurotransmitters that promote mental and physical wellness whenever you serve. Serving actually serves us. We talked about how physiologically the side effects of living in unforgiveness, how it affects to high blood pressure, anxiety, depression. It makes recovery longer when you're sick or dealing with an illness. God created you this way. He created your body. Do you know that God also created you in such a way that hope does something for you? That hope actually has a physiological and a neurological effect on your well-being. Hopelessness leads to depression, anxiety, feeling overwhelmed. Hopelessness can make recovery that much longer. Now, Pastor Ray Johnston, who's pastor out in Bayside in California, wrote a book called Hope Quotient. Listen to what he says. Hope can change everything. Picture what happens when a person of genuine hope comes into your life. All it takes is one. One person, and in a flash, the whole atmosphere can change for your life because of hope. What can happen when a person feels more hopeful? Here are 11 quick healthy side effects of hopefulness. You ready for this? People who experience hope have more relationship satisfaction. They're more productive. They're more resilient in times of stress. They tend to be more successful, more satisfied with life. They demonstrate more compassion towards themselves and towards others. They are more willing to help other people in need when they feel hopeful. They are physically healthier, mentally healthier. They have higher moral and ethical standards when you feel hopeful. You are more likely to step into a leadership role when you feel hopeful. And lastly, you are more likely to see God as loving, caring, and forgiving. How many of you need that kind of hope in your life? I do. But here's the thing. Who and what you put your hope in does matter. It absolutely is essential. Because the level of your hope, and I'm going to show you. I wanted to do a seesaw, but I was like, that's going to be too hard to get up here. So instead, I'm the human seesaw, okay? So just bear with me here. I know I'm a rather round seesaw. It's okay. It's all good. So imagine whatever you put your hope in, it's dependent upon the weight and the faithfulness of the promise that that thing does or keeps. So for instance... The more faithful is something to its promise, the higher your hope is. The less faithful something is to its promise, to deliver on its promises, the less hope you have. So this is hope, this is promises. The more something is faithful to promise on what it says it's going to do, the higher your hope will be. Everybody tracking with me? Y'all catching the illustration here? So what happens when the thing you put your hope in doesn't deliver on its promises? Your hope lowers. Now, as we look at this, here's why this matters. I want you to think about the things that you put your hope in. For instance, my, one of my favorite candy bars is a Twix. I love a Twix. 
When I open a Twix, I have a high degree of hope that a Twix is gonna taste good. Why? Because unless they change the recipe on the Twix, it's always the same candy bar. Everybody tracking, right? I don't open it up and go, oh, I got a Butterfinger. No, it's a Twix. And so therefore, because they deliver regularly on the promise of a Twix being a Twix, my hope is really high, I'm going to enjoy that Twix. Now, all of a sudden you're like, well, Jason, okay, we get that. But did you know that the same is true for anything in your life that you put your hope in? And some things have a much higher stake than a candy bar. For instance, marriage. I'm gonna veer off for a second and and this is gonna feel like a marriage message and it's not, but this is important. Every couple I've ever known who gets married, and I've done more weddings than I can count, every single couple starts off their marriage with high hopes of having a wonderful, blessed marriage. Would you agree with that? I've never met a couple who says these words, I promise to love you and be faithful to you until I don't. No one says those words in a marriage. No one goes in and going, I love you right now, but in six months I may not love you anymore, or in three years I plan on getting a divorce. No one ever says that. Everybody goes into a marriage with incredibly high hopes. Why? Well, what happens in a marriage? You do the vows. And let's think about what the promise of a vow is in marriage. Here's just a sample. Maybe your vows were similar to this, but it goes something like this. You hold your spouse's hands, you turn to each other and you make a promise. I promise to have and to hold, to cherish, to love in sickness and in health, good times and bad, to be faithful to you, to love you for the rest of our lives as long as we both shall live. That's an incredible promise. People make these promises in front of each other, in front of others, and in front of God. And every couple who's standing up there in that moment believes in those promises. Sadly, our culture has not made these promises, but just simply something we do as a religious ceremony. They're just things we say. And I know this because how high is the divorce rate in our culture today? Where did it go wrong? When your hope for a great marriage is rooted in empty promises, if you don't actually do the things you promised to do, how high is your hope that your marriage is gonna be good? It goes down. Because if you're not faithful to the promises you've made, that's where hopelessness begins to feel. It's no wonder divorce rates are so high. But what happens if you actually do honor the promises you make to each other? Not perfectly, no one is perfect, everybody's gonna fail. But what if you actually are faithful as possible to doing the things that cultivate hope? If you and your spouse commit to faithfulness the way God's word describes it, and by faithfulness, I don't mean just not having affairs. If faithfulness means not having an affair, that's a really low bar. That's like saying I'm a good person as long as I'm not Hitler, right? That's a super low bar. But faithfulness according to the Bible is this. Loving your spouse even when you don't always like your spouse. Come on, we've all had that moment where you wake up and you're like, I don't know that I like this person right now. But love is not a feeling, it is a daily choice. Or how about caring for them? To cherish them? To forgive them? to laugh together, to play together, to do all the things 
that promote. And then lastly, but not least, I would say the most important, when you love and worship Jesus together, when you do those promises, how high is the hope that your marriage is going to be great? Really high. Because hope is dependent upon the faithfulness of the promise that you put your hope in. Let's make this even a little bit harder. What happens in a marriage when one person is faithful to those things, but the other person is not? Some of you are in that position right now, and I want you to hear this, okay? If your marriage is struggling, God can and wants to redeem the most broken of marriages. And it starts with cultivating hope by honoring promises. But what happens when you're honoring all the things, but the other person is not? Well, that makes hope harder to live in, doesn't it? Or worse yet, what happens when neither person is faithful to the promises? All the positive vibes and wishful thinking in the world won't give you tangible hope. Now, let's be clear. A great marriage doesn't mean it's free from difficulty and hardship. You are going to have hardships in your life. You may not right now. Everything might be smooth sailing right now, but there are going to be times in your life where hardships will come. And marriage can be very difficult. I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine, and he said these words, marriage is the hardest thing I've ever done. Because if you're doing it right, it takes work. Marriage might have sickness in it. At some point it will. Jobs will be lost. Sin happens. Conflict happens. But the Bible tells us something incredible. Did you know... That when you work through adversity, when you triumph on the other side of hardships, you actually get stronger. When you weather the storm in faithfulness, your marriage gets stronger, not weaker. When difficulties come, they get, they bind you together. They tie you together. Because your hope is not in good circumstances. Your hope is in faithfulness. There have been times in my life when my wife believed in me more than I believed in myself. I can tell you right now, I am here today on this stage because my wife believed in me when I did not. When a season in my life when I almost walked out of ministry and said, I'm done. I don't know that I can do this anymore. And my wife said, I believe in you. My wife had hope for me when I didn't have it. How many of you have a person in your life that hopes for you the way you don't? I hope you do. <laughs> hope is incredible. Adversity, hardships brought me and my wife closer, but they've also brought me closer to the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that this is supposed to be a marriage ser uh, sermon. It's not. In fact, I'm going to move away from talking about marriage because the same is true with anything in your life that you put your hope in. For instance, if you buy a new car, all of us hope that a new car lasts a really long time. Do you change the oil? Do you take care of it? Are you a reckless driver? The more, the less that you do those things, the lower the hope of the vehicle lasting. But let's make it even more critical. How about your health? If you want a long life, but you live a really unhealthy lifestyle, you can have all the hope in the world, but guess what that is? That's wishful thinking. In reality, you have practices to cultivate hope. But now let's take it to what I consider one of the most critical things in our culture today. Children. When my kids were born, I immediately hoped for my kids to be healthy. Ten fingers, ten toes. That's what I wanted, right? 
I still hope that my kids have success in life. I hope that my kids experience great marriages. And, and, and maybe you've never thought about it this way. I didn't until quite frankly I was writing this message. Did you know that every human life begins with absolutely nothing to contribute to their own hope? I want you to think about that. Your children cannot cultivate hope in their life. You have to cultivate it. They are completely dependent on you to understand what hope is. Every human life begins with nothing to contribute to the hope for their future. They simply exist. Babies don't feed themselves. They don't change themselves. They don't raise themselves. We as parents have to do it, which is why children are a gift that we are called to steward as parents. Children are dependent on their parents, on loving adults to provide hope and to give them hope for a future. This is also why the foster care system and adoption is so near and dear to the heart of God. Because what happens when a child doesn't have two parents or doesn't have a parent in their life to provide hope? God calls you and I to be hope providers. Amen? Hope matters. Hope is holy work. But I wonder if we confuse hoping for something as being the same as hoping in something. See, it's okay to hope for good weather. It's okay to hope that our kids have great jobs. It's okay to hope that our children have wonderful lives and long lives without sickness. But our hope cannot be in those things. Our hope can be for those things. Because here's the primary difference. Hoping for is realizing that things don't always go the way you want them to. Hoping in is the thing that you trust in in the midst of the storm. Hoping in is the thing that you cling to when life is hard. I know many parents who I truly believe love Jesus, who their greatest hope for their kid is that they're good athletes. What if their kid is not athletic? I know many parents who want their kids to go to great schools, have fun experiences, never experience pain, never lose, never get bored, never have hardship. But those things are not guaranteed. And when those don't happen for their children, they feel hopeless. All in the name of what the world, especially social media says, really matter. Let's go back to the scale. See, I teach my kids that their hope is in my ability to deliver on certain promises. And so what we tell them is our hope is... Well, it's in the sports, and so I drag my kid to all the different sporting. I make sure they're in every sporting club. I want them to do hobbies and talents and vacations, money, security, a nice car. Again, none of these things are bad, but they are things you hope for. They are not things you hope in. Because I've watched marriages fall apart all in the name of being good parents. I guarantee you this. Your kids need to see a loving, Christ-centered marriage far more than they need to go to another football game. Not saying football's wrong, it's not. But what happens when mom and dad aren't cultivating their marriage, showing them what love looks like? Parents, how many of you actually hope your kids love Jesus? How many of you are like, I really hope my kids love Jesus faithfully? And here's the question I would ask, are you showing them a Jesus worth following? Are you as faithful to their spiritual lives as you are to their sports, their education, and their experiences? Our kids need Jesus. Because most kids don't make it into the NFL. Most kids aren't going to be millionaires. Most kids are going to deal with the same hardships that all of us has. Would you be disappointed if your kid said, Mom, Dad, I think I want to be a missionary. 
mom, dad, I, I want to give my life to follow Jesus and I want to serve him. Would you be excited about that? Or would you be like, God, that wasn't the plan I had for you. Hope matters. But again, this isn't just about parenting. This isn't everything. See, we need more than wishful thinking. We don't need false hope. We need real hope. We need something to cling to. And I want to end as we come to the end of this message. I want to invite the band back up. I, I want to apologize to you as a pastor. Because I think one of the reasons why so many people, Christians in particular, don't understand what real hope is, because we've not taught it well. We've not preached it well. We've not really addressed it. And sometimes it's because we're afraid of offending people or losing people. And in order to understand how real hope must be, I want to share one final promise in this message that God gives that isn't a popular promise. It's a promise that, quite frankly, if I wish I didn't have to say, and, and here is the promise, life is hard. The storms will come. God never promised an easy life. In fact, God said the opposite. God said there will be storms in this life. Jesus gave this amazing sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And at it, he, during it, he explores what it means to be a Christian, to, be, to think differently in the world. And he talks about what our hope should not be in. Our hope should not be in money. Our hope should not be in status or fame or one-upping each other. Our hope should not be in selfishness, an eye for an eye for adultery, anger, revenge. Our hope should not be popularity or fame. Our hope shouldn't even be in religious piety. Your hope is not in how good you are, but how good God is, amen? And so what is, Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with this incredibly wise, profound, but difficult parable. He says this, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had found its foundation on the rock. So you need to build hope on the rock of Jesus. You need to build hope around the promises of God. When you do that, you will weather storms because storms will come. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is a fool. The fool built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell down with a great crash. Do you know how many Christians I know who were really on fire for Jesus when their hope was that life was going to be easy and good and fun? I know so many Christians that were like, yes, praise God, but they weren't building their hope on Jesus. They were building their hope on, well, if I follow God, life's going to get easier. It's not. But God gets better. I've watched as people who faithfully loved Jesus when it was easy, turn their back so quickly when it got hard. Because what they loved was the experience of Jesus, not the promises of Jesus not Jesus himself. See, our hope isn't even in hope. Our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is not in faith. Our hope is in Jesus. Our faith is in Jesus. So here's the question that I have for you. What is your hope 
built. The great hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ's righteousness. Where have you built the foundations of your hope? What are you anchoring your life to? Imagine a good sailor in a storm as he's looking out and he sees clouds and he says, I really hope for no storms. That's the four. But when the storms come, what does he put his hope in? The anchor, the boat, the safe harbor, the sturdiness of a ship. Your hope must be in Jesus. And did you know that you can cultivate hope in Christ? And it's cultivated through worship. It's cultivated through faithfulness. It's cultivated by trusting in God. The storms will come. Cancer happens. Sickness happens. A good friend of mine just shared yesterday, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. This man loves Jesus. His hope is in Jesus, but the cancer is still there. So what does he do? He prays and he clings to the hope that is the rock of Christ. Christian marriages struggle and fail. God is still faithful. Christians lose jobs. They see businesses fail. Christians will lose their life for Jesus. Praise the Lord. We live in a country that does that doesn't happen, but it does in so many places in the world. But if your hope, what you cling to is built on the rock of God's promises, you are not just likely to weather the storms. You will come out stronger on the other side of the storm. Amen. Where is your hope? Are your hope in God's promises or your strength and ability? Because your strength will fail. Our hope is in what is not what is seen, but what is unseen, according to the Apostle Paul. I want to share one last Bible verse, and it's at the end of what we shared for the verses this morning. It's found in Thessalonians. Check this out. Paul, I'm going to read it again. Would you stand with me? I want you to hear these words, and then we're going to close with a worship song. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. If you are in Christ, you are a child of the light. You don't live in the darkness. So then, let us not be like the world who are asleep to hope, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. You ever talk to somebody who gets drunk regularly? What are they putting their hope in? escapism they're putting their hope in being able to forget their pain or pleasure but guess what comes in the morning the hangover there's no hope in the hangover right you don't we need sober thinking in our faith but since we belong to the day let us be sober putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet now check this out ready Here's how you cultivate hope. Here is how you strengthen hope. It starts with sober thinking. Sober thinking means clear thinking. It means acknowledging that life is hard. Everybody say life is hard. It's gonna be hard, but God is good. Everybody say God is good. Okay, now where do we put our hope? We put our hope in Jesus. We must put on faith. He says, clothe yourself with faith. It means you choose to put on faith every day. Faith is a decision that you choose to walk into. Then you put on love as a breastplate. A breastplate covers the heart. We're not talking about emotions. We're talking about good decision making. And then he ends with this. But put on the hope of salvation as the helmet. Why is the hope of salvation the helmet? Because hopelessness is a thought issue. You need your mind set on Jesus. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do this morning. 
If you need prayer, we're going to have prayer warriors in the corner who will pray with you for hope. But would you do me this favor? Would you extend your hands? And if you want to, if you need hope this morning, repeat these words after me. Put your hands out. If you need hope, pray these words. Lord Jesus, my hope is in you. I cling to the rock. I hold desperately to you. I repent of the lies that I've believed. And now I hold firmly to you. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. Renew in me a steadfast spirit. Give me hope in the dark. Because you are my life and light. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. Let's give a clap for the Lord because God is good.